0: Thank you for listening to and sharing Our Body Politic. We're so excited to have you on this journey with us. After you listen today, please consider going to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a review. We read those because your ideas matter to us. Thanks so much. Welcome to Our Body Politic. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. In today's show, we continue our coverage of extremism in the U.S. Last month, the families of the nine people killed in the mass shooting in 2015 at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, reached an $88 million settlement with the Department of Justice. Families and survivors said the federal background check system failed to prevent Dylan Roof from buying a gun used in the murders. Roof was convicted of federal hate crimes and sentenced to death in 2017, and his sentence was upheld this summer in an appeals court. Sharon Risher has been a vocal advocate for the families of the victims. Her mother, two cousins, and a childhood friend were among those killed. She worked as a hospital chaplain and a minister in Texas and a spokesperson for gun reform and for ending the federal death penalty. Reverend Risher, welcome to Our Body Politic.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you.
0: First of all, I I just want to say I am so sorry for the loss of your mother and um, that other members of your extended family were involved, um, you know, as victims of this massacre. And I've been lucky enough to visit Mother Emanuel and seen the strength of the congregation after the massacre um, during the 2016 South Carolina primary. And I was so struck by this video you did with The New Yorker. In it, you said, my mother left a legacy in spite of the storms that she had endured in her life. So why don't we start with you telling me what your mother was like and how she served the church and how she served you and your family?
1: Well, I tell you, the story of Ethel is a a complicated story because, first of all, my mother ended up being a uh, young unwed teenage mother with me in the 1958 uh, I was born so things were really as far as uh, black people things were really not good even through all of that there was this thing in her that I guess we just get from our ancestors about being persistent And, and, and especially having faith. Her thing always was you can have anything you want if you're willing to work hard to get it. And so that's what carried her through and what has, uh, come down to me. I just
0: remember not only hearing about the massacre, but then watching, um, Dylan Roof, who since has been convicted of this massacre, be treated like a little boy. And now I see it happening with Kyle Rittenhouse. You connected that too?
1: I saw that. I said, you know what? This little Kyle Rittenhouse is trying to be another Dylan Roof, but he didn't do what Dylan Roof did. But Dylan Roof gave all these little boys the courage and the gumption to just wild out. I mean, how does it feel to see
0: these? young people being infantilized in some ways when Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice and so many other Black boys are viewed as threats at even younger ages.
1: Well, you know, our white brothers and sisters have always had a way of trying to keep their folks innocent as long as they can. You know, it started off with the women and, you know, men being lynched and killed for looking at them or whistling or whatever. So they have this fantasy of their innocence. And so with Carl Rittenhouse and, uh, with Dylan Roof, they don't see what they have done wrong. They just see that, oh, they, they made a mistake. They really didn't really want to do this. So you see what kind of, Atmosphere or what kind of culture they grew up in to produce these little boys like this.
0: There was a whole discussion that came up about forgiveness. Um, there was a family member of another victim who offered forgiveness to Dylan Roof. T- you weren't on the same bus, from what I understand. So
1: tell us where you were and where you are now. Well, you know, after hearing her say, I forgive him, I just. Dis- started to scream and holler cuz I couldn't believe that this was what came out of my sister's mouth. I couldn't just believe it and other family members got up there and I was like, "They that something wrong with them?" How are they talking about forgiveness 48 hours after this thing had happened and 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 nobody's had a chance to 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 process that. I was uh, in a lot of rage and anger about that. And that rage and anger fueled me. It gave me that, (sighs) it gave me something to blame and to hold on to because nothing made sense. And do you still feel the same way or have you? You know what? No, I don't. In October of 2017, I was preaching and the spirit of God fell upon me doing that service. And I know for some people that might sound crazy, but for me, this is the life I lead. And God said to me that day while preaching, it's time for you to get this Dylan Roof thing over with. You've been carrying this thing. You've been screaming and hollering, praying, not praying. I know that you know that you will have to forgive him. And so the words just kind of came out my mouth. I forgive you, Dylan Roof. And I'm trying to look on my sermon, trying to figure out, wait a minute, this, this. I'm trying to get my head together because I'm like, something just happened and I have no control over this.
0: What does forgiveness even mean to you? I mean, I'll say for me, I've kind of divided forgiveness into a, a, like a transactional forgiveness, which is like forgiving a bad debt. And then there's a separate forgiveness that to me is a, a deeply spiritual forgiveness.
1: Right forgiveness is setting yourself free from carrying anything that has to do with whatever particular situation. Dylan Ruth had overpowered my life. You hear me mm. physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, all of that. He took over me. And in order to get back to some semblance of me, I had to let all of that stuff go and rely on God, knowing that God wants us to forgive so we could be free. Not that I absolve him of what he did, but you have no more power over my life. And this was not
0: the first moment of racial terrorism at the church. Of course, um, Denmark VZ had planned a rebellion of enslaved people and the church was burned down in 1822, I believe. Might. You know, how did you talk about that act of racial terrorism when you were going to the church as, uh, you know, a girl and woman?
1: Did you discuss— But we didn't talk about that. Interesting. no. So it wasn't until I got to be, you know, graduated from college and, and things like that to really delve into the history of Emmanuel. But it just shows that that church has always been a symbol for, for the black church in South Carolina, a place that was started because black people could not worship in the white Methodist church. Yeah. The pride that I have coming out of that church, I think some of that has rubbed off on me and my willingness to be able to talk about the hard subjects and to be able to be proud of the fact that I come out of a church that stood for racial equality for Black people, all people. And how did you get into the ministry? (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know what? It's kind of crazy. I uh had been go- going through a divorce, had gone through a divorce, was looking for a job and ended up being uh hired by the Presbytery of Charlotte. And that's the district office of the Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I started to participate in the church, teaching Sunday school, yada, make a long story short, a guy was uh, on a recruiting tour from Austin Seminary in Texas, and uh, we were talking. He said, anybody ever said that you probably have gifts for ministry? He said, you certainly know how to talk. I went to this school, and God was saying, get ready because this is where you getting ready to come because I'm getting ready to turn your life upside down, and I'm going to use all of that you done not been through to be a messenger for me, to be able to reach the people on the street, all the people in the White House, I got something for you to do. So here I am, But all I have been through, God sees fit f- to put me in situations and with people that actually have an opportunity to make change.
0: We spoke with the designer of the memorial that's being built at Mother Emmanuel for the Emmanuel Nine, for your mother. We're going to hear from him later in the show, but what's your hope for the memorial as a thing in itself and as a living memorial of the lives of the parishioners as hopefully we move towards something better than what we have now?
1: I want people to be able to come on to that church campus and to be able to read the words and to feel the spirit of those nine people. They were good Christian people. God used them to bring about conversations that America seems to continue to turn a blind eye to. But with the death of the nine, we must remember to continue to talk about racism and white supremacy to let the greater, uh, America know that we are going to stand up for ourselves. Those nine people represented more than just being killed by uh, white supremacists. They represented God.
0: Well, Reverend, we're going to leave it there. And I just want to say again, I am so deeply sorry. And thank you for sharing about your community.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: That was Reverend Sharon Risher. Her book is For Such a Time as This, Hope and Forgiveness After the Charleston Massacre. On June 17, 2015, members of the historic Emanuel AME Church were gathered for an evening Bible study. Then a 21-year-old white man walked in and was welcomed by parishioners. That was Dylan Roof, who already had become deeply engaged with white supremacist ideology. He pulled out a pistol, said that Blacks were, quote, taking over the world, and shot and killed nine parishioners. Among those murdered were Pastor Clementa Pinckney, who was also a South Carolina state senator. At his memorial, President Barack Obama delivered remarks and led the congregation in amazing grace.
2: Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Just two years
0: after the massacre, the Emanuel AME community selected architect Michael Arad to design a memorial. Arad is Israeli-American, studied architecture in the U.S. and served in the Israeli army. He's best known for the September 11th Memorial in New York City.
2: Unlike most architectural projects, the aim of a memorial is really almost to produce nothing more than an emotional response. It doesn't need to you know, shelter art in the museum and make it accessible to visitors. It doesn't need to provide a place to sleep or a place to work. It's really just about an emotional connection between the past and the present.
0: Arad told me he was approached to pitch a design with a question. And the question wasn't, what should we design here? But rather, what is your understanding of what happened here?
2: I think forgiveness was at the heart of the Christian doctrine behind design effort here and you know i'm not christian and i'm not black and, and you know i'm native born to this country and so it was really sort of approaching this project from the outside and listening i think there are many things which are universal and i think the architects and designers have a tendency to to think about how is it going to look how is it going to be built rather than what is it about first and foremost
0: Architectural Digest wrote that unlike the bid for the 9-11 memorial, which Arad won through what they called the force of his design concept, this Emanuel 9 memorial project consulted with church members. Arad and parishioners came to a shared understanding of the themes of the memorial before even getting to the drawing board. Arad made sure to incorporate feedback from the community into his design process for the memorial, and he told me a little bit more about that collaboration and its challenges.
2: It was difficult sitting across the table from strangers who've suffered terrible and violent loss and asking them to talk about it to a complete stranger. But I think those conversations, some of which occurred around the conference room table in the library next door to the church, played such a, a critical role in helping me understand what this project should do before I even thought about what it might look like.
0: Part of the back and forth, Arad said, was about whether to focus directly on the victims or broaden it to be about the whole congregation and its history of persecution.
2: It's fairly abstract in some ways and very direct in others. It delineates the actual footprints, it lists the actual names. I thought it was important that anybody who comes here would immediately understand who the victims were and what their race was. And I brought that to the group and some people embraced it and others felt that it actually shifted the focus of the memorial from the congregation and the victim's families to the nine themselves. And the nine, as terrible as their death was, is part of a much longer history for this congregation of two centuries of persistence and suffering and overcoming.
0: And it was important for Arad to take the time to get things right. It
2: was a difficult period of trying many different design directions. And what we ended up with, I think, very much reflects on the history of the church and on the spirit of the church. It's a congregational space, a place that brings people together. The design of the memorial courtyard is really centered on the name's fountain that lists the nine. The source of that water is a cross cut in a bowl and the water flows up and over the names. But flanking that fountain are two long fellowship benches that create a, a place where people can come together as a congregation. And I think it's the strength of this congregation and its history that we were trying to draw upon.
0: Arad says he hopes the memorial can help connect people to that whole arc of history, not only of the Emmanuel AME Church, but of the city and community in which it resides. He referred to another monument in Charleston that was taken down in 2020 during the summer of racial justice protest. It was a statue of John C. Calhoun, a former U.S. vice president and adamant supporter of slavery.
2: When we began this process, we could not have imagined that the Calhoun statue would come down and seemed permanent on the, the Charleston skyline. And yet it has come down. And I think we are trying to understand now where that line is, which stories do we feel we should reconsider their impact on our public spaces, on our day-to-day life. And it's not easy because a lot of the past of this country is tied up in people who performed acts that were both good and evil. And how do you parse that out? I would say that our whole country was horrified by what happened, ashamed in some ways, that such a thing could happen in our, in our world. This memorial is an attempt to both remind us that it happened, but also to move us into a world where such attacks, such hatred doesn't exist. We're always in the middle of time, right? But this feels like a particularly fraught moment. And I think if we can create a place in Charleston, that allows visitors to come to honor the Nine, to honor the survivors, and to reflect on the history of this congregation, we will have succeeded.
0: Michael Arad is the architect behind the planned Emanuel Nine Memorial. Just this past week, the Aspen Institute put out a report from its Commission on Information Disorder. For six months, members of the commission, including our next guest, heard from researchers, community leaders, tech industry representatives, and lawmakers about the impact of disinformation and what we can do about it. Civil rights leader Rashad Robinson was co chair of the commission, along with journalist Katie Couric and cybersecurity expert Chris Krebs. Robinson is president of Color of Change, a racial justice organization of more than 7 million members. Its mission is to build power for black communities. For years, Color of Change has pushed for accountability in the media. Robinson was instrumental in forcing Bill O'Reilly off the air, for example. The organization pushes for better representation of race in Hollywood, defends net neutrality, and also has set its sights on equity issues in social media and tech platforms. Welcome, Rashad.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: In this commission's report, you talk about what happens online as connected to entrenched and historic inequity. What else do you think is really notable in the report?
3: Information disorder is a crisis that exacerbates all of the crisis. You know, when bad information becomes as prevalent, pervasive, and persistent as good information, it creates a chain reaction of harm. And one of the biggest challenges we've had Um, in this country and dealing with it is the lack of leadership, the lack of leadership from the public sector, the lack of leadership from the private sector. And I think this report really provides a roadmap and some clear direction and some clear recommendations for dealing with this problem. And does that sort of with the support from a wide range of folks that were both on the commission, but the wide range of experts who actually came in and advised.
0: Let's go to what your 15 recommendations are. We're not gonna go through all of them, but give us a couple.
3: Now I instantly thought of the super spreader recommendation that really Mm. focused on the platforms and dealing with the relatively at times, small number of people who have outsized impact on how information gets spread. Transparency, creating more transparency at the platform level just not only for researchers but for us to understand and for government to understand how ads are being funded and by who the same way that you know tv ads have to be transparent And then, from my perspective, some of the most important are the ones that really get at the product design and the business model. You know, the platforms have relied on something called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act to be able to oftentimes shield themselves from accountability. All the recommendations really need to be taken together asking folks um, to be more resilient or to get more uh, literate in media doesn't deal with the fact that these platforms are constantly changing their algorithms and constantly changing sort of how they move content. All of these taken together, though, I think are going to be very, very important. And, you know, now the work continues to push those in power to recognize that they've got to move and they've got to move quickly.
0: In this report from uh, the commission, there is um, a lot of talk about media, including local media investment, and also a lot of talk about diversity of workforces. So, you know, diversity of social media platform companies. It strikes me, too, that like what we've seen from the, you know, the migration of the online advertising model is that Facebook is the local newspaper for so many people now and When you think about diversity in the context of both the platforms and media, what kind of case can you make that hasn't been made before? How do you actually operationalize these changes?
3: You know, I, you know, say often, and we say often at Color of Change, that we will always lose in the back rooms unless we have the people lined up at the front door. And to be Perfectly clear. This is why um, reports like this um, are only as important as the people who get behind and continue to push. So we need more people engaged in this work of making demands, of pushing policymakers. The Public Restoration Fund, as one of the recommendations that really was born out of sort of looking at the truth campaign and thinking about sort of how do we have a place where resources can be aligned to actually make real investments in solving some of these problems. And so what we wanted to do is put some, you know, just some love and some support behind these initiatives, but also, um, I think, some focus on the need to continue to scale.
0: Let's circle back to something you mentioned earlier, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Among the recommendations you have, withdraw platform immunity for content that is promoted through paid advertising and post-promotion. And I just recently was seeing that political campaigns are using social media influencers as a backdoor for, you know, basically unregulated ad spending. The, You know, the the your report also says, the commission's report also says, remove immunity as it relates to the implementation of product features, recommendation engines and design. Break that down in simple language. What does that really mean?
3: It means that, you know, right now on TV, like TV stations are responsible to an extent for the type of advertising that they run, and that there's, there are standards behind that. There are no standards behind paid advertising on um, on social media platforms, and they are. And social media platforms have argued that they have immunity around paid advertising, and that has to stop. It's even more important on social media platforms because of the level of micro targeting where. Many in the public won't even ever see most of the ads, right, that are running because they're, they're being sent to a small number of people. And the kind of precision nature of it means that there's even more opportunity to fuel mis and disinformation. For instance, if you go and you follow a, um, a doctor sprouting off mis and disinformation about COVID, you will be on many of the platforms. Served up with um, a whole set of recommendations for other folks. If you follow a white nationalist or you get inside of a white nationalist closed group, you might be recommended as a whole set of other groups, right? The platform's business models, right, are incentivized to keep you on the platform. Growth and profit can always be sort of the highest calling of these platforms, regardless of how much it impacts safety, integrity and security. Now, if growth and profit is actually going to be harmed because they re- they lose some of their immunity, perhaps safety, integrity and security will become a greater priority.
0: Now, I want you to put on a few of your hats at once as a commissioner, as the head of color of change and as a black man in America with extremism on the rise, and with the midterms coming up, how can people of color and communities of color, uh, and Black people in particular, protect
3: themselves? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that keeps me up at night, to be perfectly honest. As I even watch the, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse trial, and I think about all of the messages that constantly get sent to us about our value and our worth and um, the value of our lives, it keeps me up. It keeps me thinking about my niece and my nephew and my family and myself and and all the members of Color of Change and the people that I have to wake up every day thinking about how to advance rules for. And part of this accountability work, part of this rule change work, part of this thinking about this work at scale is how I try to make sense of this. And so um, that is one thing. I think the second thing for all of us in our families is that we've got to be looking out for one another and to recognize that we're only going to get so much policy change. And only and policy change will only take us so far in this sort of immediate. 2022 will be deeply challenging. And right now, as a result of all sorts of things that haven't been done, we will be facing threats that will be unprecedented in some ways, even though missing disinformation and vigilante attacks on Black communities are nothing new, the level of which folks are able to access technology and the speed that they're able to move at has actually made for a different type of hostile climate. We've got to monitor what we're clicking on and what we're sharing and what we're sending. We've got to get involved in efforts that hold these institutions accountable. We've got to raise our voices to our elected officials. You mentioned 2022, mm. and the quick thing I want to add is that 2024 will be an election where more people are voting in democratic elections than ever before in the history of the world. You'll have the United States, EU, UK, Mexico, India, Ukraine. I think there's a couple of other places. Many of these places have never aligned around the same time and some of them haven't always been democracies. And so to the extent that right now, the way things are set up with these unregulated companies is that they get to decide how much infrastructure and what the rules are and how they're going to be able to deal with missing disinformation on their platforms. We know from 2016 that the Russians seem to know more about Black people than the people at working at Facebook did. And so what we've got to all recognize is heading into 2024, And of course, heading into 2022, we've got these challenges with these platforms being responsible for dealing with and disrupting the attempts and attacks on our information ecosystem. And right now they are not incentivized to do it, nor are they held accountable fully when they don't do it. And so part of the urgency is related to being able to protect the ability to have democracies, and particularly as a civil rights and racial justice leader in the United States, I think about what does it mean to have multiracial democracies. And multiracial democracies are an experiment. And right now, this experiment is being challenged.
4: Last
0: question, and and you can just keep this short. What keeps you going? You mentioned your younger family members. Like, what what keeps you engaged? What keeps you hopeful?
3: You know, uh, 2020... The summer of 2020, racial justice became a majoritarian issue. Many people thought the best we could do in terms of activism was clap outside of our windows or uplift investigative journalism. And people of all races took to the streets. Now, just because it's a majoritarian issue doesn't mean it's a governing majority. But what keeps me going is not just the activism of everyday people, but it's the opportunity I have every day to see the challenges that we are facing and know that I can be part of doing something about it. Rashad,
0: it's really great to hear you talk with such passion about an issue that is so important. Thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: That was Rashad Robinson, president of Color of Change and co-chair of the Aspen Institute Commission on Information Disorder. This week on Sip in the Political Tea, I'm joined by Professor Kiara Bridges. She's a professor at UC Berkeley School of Law and a scholar on critical race theory. She also wrote a book about it, Critical Race Theory: A Primer. Welcome to Our Body Politic, Professor Bridges. Thank you. It's so good to be here. And I'm joined by Our Body Politic contributor Karen Atia, also a columnist for the Washington Post. Her work focuses on race, international affairs, culture, and human rights. Welcome back, Karen. Thanks, Farrah. Good to be back. So let's get right into it. This week, we are talking about critical race theory, the thing that many people deliberately describe the wrong way. Here's a clip from NBC News about the fight happening around critical race theory, or CRT.
2: Parents are accusing school boards of indoctrinating kids by teaching critical race theory. That's an umbrella term for the academic study of racism's extensive impact. But new NBC reporting shows that the blowback is not a grassroots movement. It's actually a national push with at least 165 local and national groups aiming to disrupt lessons on race and gender.
0: Kiara, as a scholar of critical race theory, why do you think this debate seems to be gathering steam even as more news outlets have tried to explain what CRT is and isn't?
4: I think the debate is gathering steam because it's working. The whole reason why we're talking about critical race theory now is to get that base that Trump motivated coalesced into sort of a movement to get them active, to get them out of their homes and to keep them afraid about losing, you know, what they imagine to be their country to um, non-white others.
0: And Karen, you know, we're going to do a deep dive on this later, so don't go into too much detail, but give us a quick hit on how CRT is showing up in
5: politics. And do you also think it's gaining steam? Yeah, I mean from where I've been based, my home state of Texas, naturally one of a handful of red states that has no well actually not even explicitly said a CRT should be banned from schools, but Governor Greg Abbott basically saying that any teachings that make Kids feel uncomfortable or, or or guilty for things that happened in the past should be outlawed. And it's absolutely gaining steam. And I think just like Kiara said, uh, why is it gaining steam? Because it seems to be working and it's, it's actually quite frightening, frankly. And I think also it's gaining steam because as we saw last year with the protests and Black Lives Matter and pushes for more diversity and inclusion, that gains steam too. So it's almost like this push and pull, this Action and backlash that we're seeing here in our politics.
0: Yeah. And and you know, school board meetings and classrooms have become ground zero for the issue. So, Kiara, walk us through how you make sense of, you know, why the pipeline into students' brains is, you know, right now kind
4: of a, a, a treacherous road. I would start back in September 2020 when the sort of general public became introduced to the term critical race theory with Christopher Ruffo appearing on Fox News saying that federal employees were being trained in critical race theory. But it wasn't like popular or maybe even interesting to most people until people started to claim that it wasn't federal employees who were at danger of being exposed to this theory, but rather children, right, K through 12 schools. And that's when we really saw sort of momentum uh, build on this particular culture war, when children were identified as the the likely victims of this exposure.
0: And this has real world consequences. At least six educators have resigned due to death threats. It's led to, you know, kind of poisonous school board meetings and, of course, lawmakers looking at this at the state level, introducing this legislation to limit the teaching of what they're calling critical race theory, which in many cases is basically history. That's accurate. And Karen, (laughs) Mm -hmm. with all of this going on, you know, you're someone with one of the top jobs in journalism and opinion columnist for The Washington Post. So how should journalism be covering what's now this massive legal battle royale?
5: I actually had the opportunity to um, attend one of these contentious school board meetings, the case of Dr. James Whitfield in Great Van Colleyville Heritage uh, High School in North Texas. Um, This is the Black principal who was accused of promoting critical race theory. So, you know, I had an opportunity to go to one of the hearings where the board was deciding on his professional fate as um, the first Black principal of Great Fine Colleyville heritage. And you saw how the the die was cast, right? He had not received any sort of indication as to why exactly his job had been put on the line. He'd been put on administrative leave after he complained on Facebook about the treatment he was getting, about the the threats and the abuse he was getting and not getting support from the district. And to a certain extent, I, I think one thing When I went into that meeting, I saw overwhelming support for this man. Students who were crying at what their school board was doing. There are so many parents and students who are aghast (laughs) at what Mm. is happening. And the kind of the right wing, the GOP, they're using these issues, CRT, to frame themselves as the party of parents' rights. And... We hear so little from the parents and advocates who are fighting back. And you know what? Honestly, the voices that that get lost in this and that miss out the most are the rights of the youngest citizens, of the students. There are students who protested, who are also facing consequences for speaking out in favor of learning about their history. It's the the children. Are the ones who are suffering the most yeah. who are who are being used as pawns, frankly, in this culture war games that also teachers don't have time for. It's the spread of a i and I've said this before, a backlash, I think, to the visibility and the power of the LGBT community, Black lives matters, frankly, that really shook up. And Me too. I think it's not just critical race theory, but it's also attacks on books and materials written by women, written by LGBT. It's it's the power structure trying to retain power, <laughs> right? Yeah, ultimately that's what yeah. this is about.
0: Well, you know, looking at the chessboard, as of early November, twenty eight states introduced bills or took other steps to restrict teaching what they're calling critical race theory, and twelve states have enacted these bans. That's from Education Week, and. Kiara, what do you think the long term effects of these legal battles and and legislative battles will be?
4: Well, I'm afraid about the consequences to the First Amendment and the way that we interpret it. I, I love to tell people that, you know, back in the 90s, like actual critical race theorists, you know, Kim Crenshaw, Gary Peller, Neil Gotonda, Mary Matsuda, right? They were interested in investigating how the First Amendment ought to be interpreted vis-a-vis hate speech. And they were interested in encouraging scholarship that made arguments that the First Amendment ought not to be interpreted to protect hate speech, you know, expletives, racial slurs, you know, campuses should be able to prohibit students from saying that sort of speech. Why? Because it was hurtful, you know it was injurious to people of color it it damaged them and excluded them from the body politic. And also, their arguments got zero traction, right? People dismissed it. Mm. What is completely wild to me is that those same arguments are being picked up and embraced in this particular moment. That is, it's exactly what the anti-CRT folks are arguing. They're arguing that, well, there's just certain types of speech that make white kids uncomfortable. Toni Morrison's Beloved makes them feel bad about themselves. Hearing about, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act and hearing about Operation Wetback— you know those events chattel slavery the civil rights movement Ru- ruby bridges makes white kids feel bad about themselves it makes them feel guilty and so we have like this perversion of the first amendment how the first amendment can't protect people of color from harmful speech but it's perfectly protective of of white kids
0: we just spoke earlier in the show with Rashad Robinson of Color of Change and also the Aspen Institute Commission on Information Disorder which just produced a major report on disinformation and we talked about the ways in which race and disinformation get put into a merge lane as people look to weaponize information or rather disinformation so karen looking at this from a committed journalist perspective This wave of disinformation and how race and now what's being called CRT play into it. How do you see a path ahead to increasing the level of trust that people have in news these days?
5: Hmm. Or do you? I actually just uh, a few weeks ago did a, a live chat with Washington Post readers and I got a lot of questions about, Karen, can you just explain what CRT is? And again, I try to write from the perspective of, okay, well, how do you push back against what is a well-funded information war? Does it make sense to try to say, okay, well, we'll just write a bunch of articles or or we'll just have a bunch of workshops about what CRT is? Is that actually what is going to work? And I find myself being quite skeptical about that because it's not about, this is not about CRT because <laughs> exactly. it's not being taught in schools. It is not. It's about control. It's about power. And let's go
0: deeper into the politics, like Virginia's recent gubernatorial election. Here is a clip from the Hill of Governor-elect Glenn Youngkin addressing his supporters during the campaign.
2: We have some abhorrent chapters in our history. We have to teach them. But friends, Dr. Martin Luther King called us all to be better than we are. He called us to judge one another based on the content of our character and not the color of our skin. And critical race theory is a political agenda that as absolutely in our schools, and it teaches everyone to view everything through a lens of race and then pits our children against one another.
0: So, So let me just start very briefly with, you know, the question of invoking Martin Luther King. Professor, I will go to the good professor. Mm-hmm. What is the point of invoking, you know, Reverend King here?
4: Dr. King is one of those figures who actually stood for something very particular, but has been uh, sort of rendered into an ambiguous figure whose sayings, whose words, quotes can be used by those on all sides of an issue as sort of affirming their claim. We see it in the law all the time, you know, with Dr. King's hope that we would one day be judged on the content of our character and at the color of our skin as like, a claim that the Constitution demands colorblindness and therefore programs like affirmative action or race-conscious school assignments, those things are unconstitutional. So we've seen Dr. King weaponized. To claim that Dr. King would be in some way opposed to the intellectual framework that critical race theory actually is, to claim that Dr. King would be opposed to teaching about Ruby Bridges <laughs> and these efforts uh, to desegregate schools in the 1950s and 60s. It really is laughable. Yeah, and and Karen, hold,
0: you know, that whole Reverend King thing in mind. And let me fold in a quote from a New York Times piece that quoted Yale graduate student Micah English. He said, Quote, the Republican message right now is essentially Democrats and Biden are only concerned about teaching your children critical race theory instead of focusing on the economy. The Democrats have no unified counter message, and until they do, they are likely to continue to suffer major losses in the midterms and beyond. Now, Karen, I feel like the midterms are next week, not next year, just judging by the heat in the kitchen. Can you give us a little bit of perspective on how these threads are also affecting the chessboard for next year's congressional elections and other elections?
5: I haven't seen Democrats with a good message on this. I mean, who wants to be seen as against kids or against parents? I don't think there is a a unified counter message yet. And it's not enough to just say Well, we're not teaching critical race theory. It's just it's an advanced legal theory. So let's not even pay attention to this. It is gaining steam and very quickly. They're going to have to stop bringing stuffed animals to a machine gun fight. I mean, this (laughs) is uh, the speed and the ferocity. The Democrats will see losses next year, for sure, if they do not get it together on this new cultural front. And I fear a little bit that, that the Democrats really aren't taking this as seriously as they should be. School boards, in a lot of ways, for some of these members are additions to get into bigger arenas of politics. Oh, absolutely. Right? I, I can't help but think of that classic Will Rogers
0: quote, I belong to no organized political party. I am a Democrat. Now, <laughs> you know,
5: <laughs> that's how it feels. That's how it feels for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. and And so, Kiara, let's close out the CRT talk with you. Imagine that you're talking to you know, a friend who maybe you used to be close to and you haven't talked to in a while, and you find out that they are really like on the, maybe not on the anti-so-called CRT bandwagon, but kind of adjacent, what would you say to
4: them just as a friend? Well, after I finished rolling my eyes hard, <laughs> <laughs> I think this was what Karen was getting at. I think it's important for us to move beyond this unproductive fight about what critical race theory is and whether or not, you know, it is being taught in schools. I mean, I spent the first part of this culture war doing just that, right? Defending the boundaries of the term critical race theory. And so now I've kind of realized that I, I just don't have enough money. <laughs> like yeah. I don't have a platform to you know, speak the truth in the way that the right has platforms to speak untruths. In order to meet the the terms of the battle, you know, where it is, if I were talking to a friend, I would ask them, what do you think the danger is of learning about our history, of reading literature, of being exposed to concepts like structural racism, like racial privilege, like implicit bias? I think that a lot of people, reasonable people, right? In good faith would say that it's kind of un-American to believe that, that we shouldn't teach concepts. It's dangerous, right? To offer our kids a version of history that doesn't align with reality. It's kind of indoctrinating ignorance. And I think that that sort of contextualized, grounded, nuanced discussion would get us a whole lot further than fighting over whether critical race theory should or should not be in schools.
0: Yeah, well, we're going to close out our CRT talk there, but we have one more topic, and that one goes to Karen, who is competing for the first time (laughs) at the U.S. (laughs) Muay Thai Open in Phoenix, Arizona. How did this happen and what is happening?
5: Oh man. I've just always had just this interest in in martial arts and striking. And so when I discovered Movie Thai a couple of years ago, I get, just got hooks.
0: How do you feel when you
5: fight? I would say I feel free, I think. Mm. It is about your your will and it is about kind of turning your brain off. Because you know, you know, those of us who are in in journalism or academia We use our brains so much. We're in our sort of intellectual logic feelings. And I think what Muay Thai does for me is to remember that there's other types of, of knowledge. There's few things on this earth that's more scary than realizing somebody is trying to take your head off. So it really tests who you are in a way that no other thing for me really does.
0: Let's all wish Karen the best as she trains and competes. And thank you both for joining me today, Karen and Kiara. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. That was Karen Atia, columnist at the Washington Post, and Kiara Bridges, professor at UC Berkeley School of Law and a scholar on critical race theory. Thank you for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by LWC. I'm the creator and host Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua is executive producer. Jen Chien is executive editor. Our senior editor is Vera Lynn Williams. Paulina Velasco and Sarah McClure are our senior producers. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Our political booker is Bridget McAllister. Emily Daly is assistant producer. Original music by associate sound designer Kojin Toshiro. Production assistance from Mark Betancourt, Elizabeth Nakano, and Natina Bean. This program is produced with support from Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising-Simons Foundation, the BME Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.